I'm Justin Harmon, and this episode of Let's Talk Jackson is sponsored by Mississippi Federal Credit Union. For Let's Talk Jackson, I'm Todd Stauffer. My guest this episode is Nashley Cephas, a Jackson native who graduated from Jackson Public Schools to ultimately go on and earn a Ph.D. in computer science from Georgia Tech. She worked in Atlanta as the founder and chief technology officer of a startup company that was ultimately acquired by one of the world's largest technology companies. I promise that you will recognize the name. Now, while she still works in Atlanta, her nonprofit, The Bean Path, is celebrating its two-year anniversary soon here in Jackson. And she's working on a new live-work development near downtown Jackson that promises maker spaces, restaurants, and an unprecedented creative environment. Here's my conversation with Nashley. Okay, so there, there's a part of me that feels like I have maybe heard or told the Nashley Cephas story more than I've told my own, (laughs) (laughs) at least in the last maybe five years. But I would love for you to talk to Let's Talk Jackson about who you are, where you're from. I know you're from Jackson. Talk to me first maybe about growing up in Jackson, Mississippi. Yes. So I am born and raised here in Jackson, and I am a, a product of Shady Oaks area and a little bit of South Jackson. And uh, I went to Murrah High School for, um, and I graduated class of 03. And I also went to Power APAC, played piano there. I was really involved with music. And um, I did a lot in school, like, you know, played tennis, was in the band. I was very active with community service and volunteering. And so I like to think I was the cool nerd, you know, <laughs> like I could get along with pretty much anybody. But, um, but you know, when it came came down to it, I was in the books and made sure I made the grade. And because, you know, there, there wasn't, you know, guarantee that I would have money to go to college. So I knew I had to perform really well um, to get, you know, school paid for it. So that's, that was my, my motivation. So, yeah. so, and then going to JPS, how important was being able to get into programs like Power APAC? Oh, it was, it was phenomenal. I'm, I'm sure piano and, um, Miss Polanski, I was very, very strict piano teacher uh, when I was there, kept me out of a lot of trouble. She taught us how to be very well disciplined with our time and time management. Uh, we had to work really hard and study really hard. It was essentially uh, almost like a, a college prep program for people who wanted to major in music. And so, uh, you know, music theory, playing the piano by ear, uh, learning how to read music and memorize music, all, all genres of music from classical, the Baroque period, all that, all the way to jazz and, um, you know, contemporary. And so um, it took a lot of time. And I think things like that, things like playing tennis and, you know, just staying active. My mom always had us in a summer camp or, or something um, and just kept us off the streets. It kept us out of, you know, trouble. And so my sister as well, so my younger sister. And so I think that really helped us just just know how to have a strong work ethic you know, mm-hmm. and then how did it even work? Like you're going to high school, mm-hmm. and then you're also doing. I mean, how much music were you doing in a given day, and focusing on that? I, I was doing a lot because I I was a, I guess you say a little bit of an overachiever, a little bit. I just I just wanted to perform really well in in everything that I did, and uh, and half the time I didn't even know that I was performing so well. I just wanted to get it right, um, not necessarily win, you know, and compete with others. But I ended up being, you know, usually at the top of the class or you know, uh, performing well and um, getting a lot of recognition for it. 
You know, there was times when I was practicing before school because we had, you know, homework to do. And then I was practicing after school, um, weekends, especially when I had competitions and uh, I had won a lot of awards and things like that and had a free entrance into uh, the Hans Community College uh, summer program where we learned about music that summer. We stayed on campus. It was, it was a great program. And so I was I had free admission to that, you know, so all these things were sort of like, you know, it was paying off learning and, and putting in the time and work. And um, that's kind of where, you know, I just I just knew that, you know, if I put enough time into something that I could be really good at it. So you get through that process. You graduate from high school. Did, did that help you get to college? I mean, did, that, did you get money for college? Did you get scholarships? Was it music or was it something else? Yeah. So uh, well, I ended up majoring in, majoring in computer engineering. Um, that's uh, I knew I wanted to be a computer engineer um, from my eighth grade year, the summer after my eighth grade year when um Ms. Portia Powell, my eighth grade science teacher, sent me to a camp. It happened to be uh, the Society of Women Engineers camp at Mississippi State. And uh, I was happy to get out of Jackson, too, for a summer, you know, and um, and see something different, explore a different type of, you know, environment. And, uh, and I remember my whole life just changed. First of all, seeing women doing engineering, learning about what engineering was, and didn't really know what it was. Um, and it was just fascinating, you know. And so I always had my love for music. Um, that was my first love, as I say. And then, you know, engineering came along a little bit later. But, you know, when it, when it came time to graduate, I had the choice. Should I major in music or should I major in uh, computer engineering? And I chose computer engineering because um, I said, you know, I always have my, my music. You know, no one can, you can ever take that away from me, you know. And so I actually ended up playing in a band. We, we recorded some albums and stuff. And, <laughs> and, you know, I did all that while, you know, in school, uh, getting my bachelor's and master's and Ph.D. in computer engineering. And so um, I did ended up going into computer engineering at, at Mississippi State. And uh, I ended up getting funding to go. It was in-state. I actually got accepted to Georgia Tech as well as Tulane. Um, and Jackson State. And so I wanted to, I found out that at the time, uh, the Jackson State and the Tulane programs were not accredited. Mm. And so I wanted to go somewhere that that had been established and accredited. And so that left Georgia Tech and Mississippi State. And so Georgia Tech, um, I I didn't get as much funding for that program and it was out of state tuition. And so that just added more money to the bill. And so I said, well, I guess Mississippi State is where it is. And, And I ended up getting Funding uh, all the way down to the day before my first day of class, ended up going to the summer bridge program, which is a, a program that they allow you to come like a semester earlier just to kind of get acquainted. You take a couple math courses and, you know, you work as engineering um, as undergrad as um, underrepresented you know, minorities in engineering. And so that program uh, called summer bridge was very in- influential. Uh, and again, I found myself kind of, you know, doing really well and excelling and performing well, people took notice. And up until the first day of school, I hadn't had all the funding, but by that first day of school, I had my entire first semester wow. paid for with scholarships that I didn't even know where they were coming from. But my advisor, she was like, don't worry, we're going to get you taken care of. And from that point on, I never spent any money on tuition all mm. the way up through PhD. Wow. And it was just one thing after another, one scholarship after another, one opportunity after another um, studying abroad, all of that was was paid for. Hmm. So, so did you did it take four years for your bachelor's, or did you do it faster? Four, or I did four and a half at Mississippi Mississippi State. I ended up studying abroad in Seoul, South Korea, and in France, and I also um, interned at several places, including IBM, Miller Transporters, right here in Jackson. Uh, also, um, uh, Delphi 
right after I graduated. But all those things mixed in, it only slowed me down by by one semester. Mm. And so I was still able to finish the entire bachelor's in computer engineering in four and a half years. Now, when was that? When did you graduate from? I, I finished state. state 07. I started in 03 and finished 07. Okay. Uh, it was just December of 07 instead of uh, summer. And the master's degree was? The master's degree was Georgia Tech. Okay. Um, I started Georgia Tech in 2008. I finished the master's in 2010. So when you're getting a PhD, you get the master's along the way. You pretty much complete all the coursework for it. Um, so I did actually get the master's, but I knew, you know, from the time I was there, I knew I was going to be there for the entire time for the okay. PhD. So. Mm-hmm. Now, you say that, but didn't you... While you were working on your PhD, you were also working, right? And oh, did yes. you even get up to New York during that yes. time? Yes. Well, okay. I, I went to New York after I finished my PhD at Georgia Tech, and that was my stint in New York. It didn't last very long. It was about a year, and I was like, yeah, I'm ready to, I'm ready to come back. Um, <laughs> but you were in Atlanta, right? <laughs> but I was in Atlanta. Yeah. People may not know, but engineering students who are PhD students, it's often encouraged that you work. I was working. I was doing internships. I was doing part-time side work. I uh, actually did projects for people on the side while getting my degree. And uh, even, in, even in undergrad, I always had like, you know, a side hustle. You know, I was either doing websites for somebody. Um, and I learned a lot by doing those things. And those weren't necessarily things that were taught in school. You know, I was just trying to, you know, get some extra cash so I can go to Piccadilly or something, you know, and get me a nice meal, maybe a dessert. But, um, you know, I was always working. As long as I can remember, I've had multiple jobs as well as, uh, you know, being very focused in my my school and studies. So what, just so that the listener kind of understands, uh, and me too, mm-hmm. but what kind of work are we talking about you're doing while you're in school studying? And is it was it always called computer engineering, or did you get into other aspects of it? Yes, yeah, so computer engineering formally is the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering, mm-hmm. I think at both Mississippi State and Georgia Tech. And so uh, we, you know, computer engineering is basically you're learning both the hardware and the software. So you can build the robot and program the robot, mm-hmm. you know. And so uh, the type of work I was doing, like, so I mentioned the doing websites on the side. Back then it was just basic HTML. It was PHP, you know, learning about databases. And once I picked it up uh, and I started getting used to it, I started doing uh, websites for churches and then for small businesses. And then this was undergrad all the way into uh, grad school. Then I got beyond that to where I was like managing entire IT systems for small businesses um, in Atlanta. And so there was a couple, there was actually one that was a patio furniture company and we would, we would get free patio furniture. So I I had this little apartment, (laughs) but I had all this patio furniture because they would give it away. Um, But I was their IT person, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I learned a lot of that at, uh, Miller Transporters from undergrad when I was working for the IT department there as a co-op student. As co-op students, you work a semester, you go to school a semester, and you alternate that for about a year and a half or so. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, again, it's all it was always encouraged to work. Even when I got to graduate school, really, like, up until, like, the first three, four years, I was continuing to do web, uh, websites. I was either a, a te- teaching assistant or a research assistant for um one of the professors at school, and I also interned at GE. I interned at um, Phi. Interned at even even interned part time while in school, uh, part time as well. And so, uh, and, and then too, when you're getting a PhD, you just kind of some years, some semesters, you just burnt out. You know, you just need a break. You need to take a step back and reevaluate your life. And like, why am I doing this? And I'm not getting paid. I'm getting paid twenty thousand dollars a year. <laughs> And I'm doing all this work and, and my professor's fussing at me, you know. And so um, 
you know, you, you kind of had to go take a step back, maybe get earn some money, feel a little bit better about yourself, and then get back in the game, you know. So that's kind of how it happened. So how did part pick mix in with all that? And explain what that is. Right. So part pick was the Atlanta-based startup that we created these algorithms. I was the chief technology officer for part pick. And we created these algorithms to do visual search for replacement parts. And so what that means is we will allow you to take a picture of a part, whether it be like a screw or a nut or a bolt or washer. And we would not only say this is a hex bolt from our algorithms, we would say our algorithm will be able to look at the part in the picture and say this is a hex bolt, two inches long, uh, half an inch base diameter, threads per inch 15. The color is stainless steel number two. You know, and we would be able to say this is your part and this is where you can buy the part this exact part. And so we created that algorithm and we, we actually have a patent for it. You know, we were working on that. I, I actually ended up creating one of the first prototypes for part pick um, because my expertise was artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, and deep learning, or what we call image recognition in this case. So algorithms that recognize objects and images. And so I met the CEO, which was young. She was maybe four years younger than me or so black female, her name was Jewel Burks. She had the idea, and but she she wasn't technical, so she needed someone to help build the product, the prototype. And then uh, one of our mutual friends uh, connected us, and I was started building it. I actually was finishing up my thesis at the time, so I was a poor grad student. So I was trying to you know help anybody that I could, but also get a little extra money on the side. And so I was able to you know build that one of their first prototypes, and um, she was able to basically take that and raise, uh, I think, $1.2 million. Wow. And so when I graduated, and she hadn't raised that until, uh, finished raising that until after I graduated, and I was already in New York at the time, you know, because I, I said, you know, I've been poor for a while. I just want to go make some money. <laughs> uh, but let me know when you raise the money, and I'll, and I'll come back. And so she she called one day. She said, hey, I got the money. I, I'd been in New York way too long. It was, it was winter time, and <laughs> I was about ready to, you know, pack it up. And so... Uh, I think they said it was the, one of the worst winners ever. <laughs> so I was like, just my luck, you know. And so I ended up putting in my two weeks notice. I was working for a consulting firm up there in, in Manhattan. And uh, I ended up putting in my two weeks notice and came back to Atlanta. And, and I became CTO full time for um, Park Pick. And so we, we ended up hiring an entire team. And, you know, the rest is, is history. Well, so. so quickly, how did she come up with the idea? Was she working in that industry or? Yeah, so she was working in cu- in the customer service department at a parts company, a parts warehouse, um, McMaster Car. And so she was oftentimes, you know, on the phone with angry customers saying, hey, <laughs> you know, this is not the part I ordered. I, I wanted this part. It had the thingamabob on it. And it was about the size of your hand. It was black <laughs> and silver. You know, where's my part? And she was like, well, you know, she had the idea after being, you know, cursed mm-hmm. out enough and you get angry customers. You say, okay, why don't you just take a picture of it? Just send it to me. And put some size reference in the background. And then she was like, after doing that for a while, she said, wait a minute, why, why can't we just automatically like identify these parts mm-hmm. and just let these people you know, use an app or something to just get the parts directly? Like, why, why do I even have to deal with all this? And so that's what she did. She started coming up with the idea. Um, she also had a, she talks about her grandfather who had a, uh, who's a farmer in Alabama and um, he needed a part to it for his tractor. And so, you know, he couldn't find the part anywhere. He actually called her, and she couldn't find the part. And she was like, wow, I wish I had that, that app. You know, you just take a picture of the part, <laughs> and, you know, you just you get it mailed to you, like the Amazon 
for parts, you know, and so that's how she started with the idea. And so push came to shove and she she entered a few accelerators and incubators uh, for startups. One was in, one was based in New York um, and then a couple others in Atlanta. She decided to make Atlanta the home base, even though a lot of people wanted us to move to Silicon Valley. They mm-hmm. wanted us to move to New York or the West Coast. But, you know, we we fought to stay in the southeast we thought that was where we should should be a lot of our customers were there a lot of you know builders and suppliers and you know we wanted to show people that you know you could do this in the southeast as well you don't have to always flock to the west coast mississippi federal credit union is a sponsor of let's talk jackson and i'm here with justin Harmon from mississippi federal so when you are a member of a credit union, there are all these benefits, obviously, that, that kind of come to you. Sure. But you're also kind of a member of a nonprofit. How does that work? So when you become a member of the credit union itself, one of our core principles is being involved in the community. So when you do deposit your money and have an account with us, we're able to take those funds and actually help the community around us. So that could be anything from doing a cleanup day, helping Ronald McDonald House, helping Larry Bassin Hospital for Children, doing things in our local community to support them and help them grow. And then your branch is on campus at UMMC. That's right. But then they can also do branching all over the country at credit unions, right? They can, actually. There's over 5,500 branches that they could do business in, just like they're doing business with us. Okay. So really no drawback, and then you kind of have this opportunity to, to help the community. Absolutely. All right. Mississippi Federal Credit Union, a proud sponsor of Let's Talk Jackson. Let's get back to the show. You were, in fact, in the book Rise of the Rest by Steve Case, the former co-founder and CEO of America Online back in the day, yep. sold out to Time Warner, and then mm-hmm. he became a VC. And But he uh, wrote about y'all because, in part because you were in Atlanta, right? Yes. And, and black-owned. Yes, yeah. yes. The Rise of the Rest is one of his biggest pitch competitions. That is exactly what it is. Like, what about the rest of us in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the whole country? You know, there's a lot in between. I mean, there's a lot even beyond the United States. And so, uh, but, but we don't get that recognition. And so that competition has been around to several different cities. Um, we're hoping we can get it here in Jackson, too. But, yeah, I, I love the idea that, you know, we're going to go out in these non-traditional areas, and we're going to see what's out there, and we're going to try to support these other people. We actually ended up winning that competition when it came to Atlanta and the rise of the rest, and, um, you know, Steve Case was there, and, and ever since, he's been a supporter. Wow. Was the book called Rise of the Rest, or was it was the contest? Um, the Third Wave. The Third Wave. The okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, so yep. it's a great book. I think yep. I read it uh, two or three times on an airplane, yep. just kind of yep. catching up to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He was here last year yep. at, uh, at Innovate's, conference and I know you've spoken mm-hmm. at Innovate Mississippi's mm-hmm. conference a lot. Mm-hmm. He would I think that was a consolation because he hadn't brought Rise of the Rest through Jackson yet. Yep. And he's got yep. to get out to other parts of the country. But uh-huh. you know that's uh-huh. that's a very valuable thing to recognize is, you know, the idea that people can have their startup in places other than California, Northern California or Boston or New York. Right. right. Um, and start to get some of that venture capital. Mm-hmm. So, and mm-hmm. I'm even curious about Parpik before we get into the next part of the story. Mm-hmm. Where did some of that capital come from? Was it in Atlanta, or was it mostly West Coast? Or yeah, I think so. You know, Jewel would would know best because she was on the front line. But I think a lot of it actually did not come from Atlanta or the Southeast. It was it was very difficult. So this we're talking about 2013, back in a time when AI wasn't even really a thing. It wasn't really you know, as popular as it is now, as a buzzword, I mean, the technologists knew what it was, and we called it machine learning, or we called it pattern recognition, 
um, or data analytics, but uh, it wasn't as popular and well-known as it was now. So tech startups in general in the Southeast wasn't a big thing either. It wasn't a big ticket item. Uh, what was was, uh, you know, big businesses, um, big corporations, as well as uh, real estate investment. So you had a lot of investors on that side, but not on the technology startup mm-hmm. side. You know, people say, oh, well, I, I give you this money, and I don't even know if you're going to build this thing or not. <laughs> right. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, real estate is guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that, that was something that people in other parts of the country had, you know, understood. And so a lot of our funding came from outside of, of Atlanta um, and also uh, friends and family um, that round and, and um, you know, people that, you know, just they just wanted to take a risk. And at, at this time, it I mean, we believed in ourselves, but, you know, a lot, there wasn't a lot of people like us doing what we were doing. And so, you know, some people were hesitant because of that. But there were people who took a risk on us and they took a, a shot and um, and they ended up winning. So, yeah. Well, so tell them about that. Talk about the acquisition. Yeah. So Park Pick, we were acquired by Amazon in 2016. And so it was towards the end of 2016. And so how that happened was I was actually presenting at a conference in Boston in May of 2016. And uh, I was on, I'm talking about the technology. And when I came down the steps, uh, and I actually didn't even really care to do the conference, you know, because I was, I'm the tech person. I, I like to be in the background, <laughs> leave me alone. You know, I just want to work on my code. I, I, you know, stepped out of my shell, starting to do more presentations and things. So I went and did that conference. And um, when I came down the steps, the guy from Amazon approached me and he said, hey, you know, we're really interested in what you were talking about up there. Um, can we, you know, uh, get your card? We'll talk some more. And that's that's how it all started. Uh, we went, we started, um, he actually replied, got back in touch with us via our card. And um, we went through this, you know, few months of, of due diligence mm-hmm. and uh, back and forth. And, um, you know, we're able to negotiate. You know, we didn't win everything we wanted, um, but we won enough to where people were, you know, better off and, all of our investors were, you know, well well off after that. And, um, you know, their investment paid off, you know. And so we wanted to make sure that that was something that we did. Bought to stay in Atlanta. We, we didn't want to move to Seattle. Sorry. No, no offense <laughs> to all you Seattle folks out there. It's a nice city, but uh, we wanted to stay where, where we are. Right? So we won that, that battle, too. And so we were acquired, and we started working at Amazon I, uh, in November of 2016. I've been there ever since. Okay. So you have an office in Atlanta that's an Amazon office that y'all work out of? Yes, yes. And then is it still true? I know what, at one point you, you could point at the Amazon app and see where the part pick and the, and the recognition technology had kind of shown up. Is that still true? Yeah, yeah. So it is, it's a little different now because um, it used to be uh, we released what we call, so part pick became part finder. At Amazon, and we released that back in June of 2018. And there's a whole, you know, shelf full of articles that that talk about that release and and how PartPick was acquired and became PartFinder. Um, but since then, the app is no longer um, available. However, you still can use the camera search app, which is you open the Amazon shopping app, you click the camera button, it's like to the right of the search bar, and you could point it at anything like your shoes, your watch, your computer, and it will try to bring up objects and, and products that are similar to that that's in the picture, including for parts. And so we actually did work on that when we came to Amazon. And um, we also did it for clothing, like if you want to find particular styles. And so this this area of research is called uh, computer vision. Mm-hmm. And so we did all kinds of computer vision, like being able to find shoes, you know, in addition to the parts and things. And so um, it actually became a much broader uh, mission once we were acquired. And now what are y'all doing out of there? Is it that same stuff at this point, or are you 
I know you're doing so, some more stuff about AI within yeah. Amazon, right? So, so the band broke up, you know, uh, <laughs> the Park Peak band broke up. And uh, some of us are, actually most, most people are not, are no longer at Amazon anymore. Okay. And that's just what happens usually with these acquisitions, you know. Um, it's a whole different culture. Some people, they work at a startup because they like the startup mm-hmm. culture. So once you take that away, you know, it's of no value. You know, Amazon's a big place. It's a huge uh, monster to some people. And um, you had to figure out, we had to figure out how to navigate that environment. And so, uh, you know, some people, you know, didn't want to do that. And so Jewel, actually the CEO of, she was the CEO of Parkpick. She's now at Google now. Um, she's head of uh, Google for startups for the U.S. Okay. Um, and she's based in Atlanta still. Um, I'm still in it in Amazon, um, based in Atlanta. We have two or three other engineers and scientists that are still in Atlanta um, with Amazon that were originally with Park Pick as well. Um, but everybody else has kind of moved on to other things. And myself, I've actually, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, I joined another team within uh, Amazon. So I left that camera search feature team and joined the uh, AWS AI team. AWS stands for Amazon Web Services. And so we provide cloud services to help you, you know, launch and build products. It's a shameless plug right there. <laughs> but um, check us out. But People anyway, are already <laughs> using it. They, they don't even know they're using it, and they're already using it. I know, AWS. I know. What I focus on specifically with this new team, the AI team, is fairness and, and mitigating biases in, in AI technologies, wow. including you know, things like face recognition, face analysis, as well as speech recognition and things like that. And so uh, there's so much, uh, so many layers to unpack there. And um, I think, you know, what you'll find is that a lot of companies are now really drilling down and paying attention to a lot of these technologies and software. You want to make sure it works for people of all different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different ages. Um, You know, even something as simple as um, camera equipment, um, and I'll, everybody's using video chat now. We, I'm sure we're all had our fair share of video calls right. and by now with COVID. But, um, you know, you think about, you know, back the backlight, you know, whenever I'm uh, sitting in front of a, a window and, um, you know, it may block out my face because of the silhouette. And then I have to move around the room to try to find a good place for uh, the video chat lighting to work you know, well for someone with darker skin. Mm. And so, uh, you know, this things as simple as that is that, you, know, you just want to make sure that we're developing technologies for, you know, a wide variety of customers and uh, understanding that there could be biases that exist in, in terms of our test data. There could be biases in our um, data that we use to create the products. And there could be biases in the way that we evaluate and um, even the people that we use, you know, reach out to and have these focus groups. We should be paying attention and making sure that, you know, we're listening to all different types of customers when we're developing these technologies. So, and I, and I know this is a a really deep, complex topic, but what's maybe one real-world example of something that you're seeing now that you know that you're able to mitigate or able to, you know, change the way some of the tech works? I, I like to use the example of like speech recognition. I remember when I was uh, working at Delphi, uh, which which happened to be in Kokomo, and in Indiana. They used to make the uh, uh, Bluetooth radios in the Toyotas. They used to make the navigation systems and okay. GPSs and all kinds of car and, and radio equipment. And so I worked for that company as an intern back in like 2008, actually right when everything had crashed with the with the car industry, automobile industry. One thing we were working on was testing out the Bluetooth radio and trying to, you know, dial a phone number in a Bluetooth radio. This was back in like 2008, 2009, uh, when they were first like new in, in, in the cars and everything. And so they would use me all the time. This was based in Indiana, right? So they would use me all the time and say, Nash, we need you to help test 
And so I would always try to dial um, a number, and I would, you know, my number starts with 601 from Mississippi. <laughs> I never changed it. And so every time I would say six, it would never recognize six. It was like hmm. nine, seven, and, and they never got it right. I mean, I worked there like a whole almost uh, six months um, interning, and, um, you know, I could never dial my phone number. And so, and so it was, uh, it was, it was a testament to, you know, okay, how was this technology developed? Who developed it? Did we even, you know, source people from different areas, different dialects? Being from the South, being a black female, you know, it's almost like, you know, I am, uh, you know, say double minority, triple minority in some, some respects. And so, you know, I have a very unique perspective in that I, I use the technology, I develop the technology and I want to make sure I, I'm influencing it. Um, currently, lately, you've been working with a lot of uh, the face analysis and the face recognition, uh, which is a really hot topic. I've actually um, spoken with members of Congress on behalf of Amazon uh, several times on Capitol Hill about what we're doing about, you know, influence and changing our technology. We're doing several things. Um, we actually recently um, released a, a one-year moratorium to stop the sale of the technology to law enforcement. And, you know, that is something that people think, okay, that's what's that going to That's a small step. But if you realize what had to happen in order for that little small step to happen, right. um, and I like to say that, you know, it's important to influence companies like, like an Amazon from the inside as well as from the outside. Mm -hmm. And you need somebody kind of working both ends to make sure that, you know, these things are, are happening. And that's, that's, what I, that's where I come in. Well, so speaking of, let's bring you back to Jackson, because mm -hmm. speaking mm -hmm. of where you're from, yep. um, you have come back, at least you've brought back some energy, some experience, some wisdom, and put that into a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So tell mm -hmm. me about the nonprofit journey in Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah, so we, I created, uh, well, I won't say just I, because it was a group effort. We created the Bean Path back in 2018. And we wanted to, I wanted to start, uh, you know, a way to help bridge the tech gap in Mississippi a lot easier and a lot, a lot more community involved. You know, having been exposed to the West Coast and New York and even, even locally like New Orleans and Atlanta, Memphis, Nashville, I seeing, I'm seeing all these communities kind of thrive and, and kind of become catalysts um, to let technology be exposed throughout and infiltrated throughout these communities. And um, and I wanted to make sure that, you know, Jackson was doing the same thing and that we weren't being left behind. And not just Jackson, but really Mississippi, the entire state. Mm -hmm. You know, as you know, we're, we're not at the top of the list for a lot of good things. And so um, I wanted to be able to change that in some respect with technology since that is my area of expertise. And so the Bean Path, what we do is so Bean is actually like a technical term used in computer programming. So I know my computer scientists out there know, but most people think of Bean as a seed that can grow into something, right? And I like the garden too. And I've actually planted some green bean seeds, and um, they look like the real green beans. You can actually take green beans or black eyed peas and put them in the ground, and they're gonna sprout, right? And so uh, Bean is like a seed that can sprout into something bigger, and they can grow into a different. Um, path and take a journey. And so the bean path, uh, we wanted to sow technical expertise in order to fertilize communities and help bridge the tech gap. And so we started out by doing these uh, free tech office hours at the local libraries. Mm -hmm. And that was prior to COVID. Since then, we've been doing it all virtual, virtually. Uh, we've helped over 300 people, giving away 
over $8,000 in scholarships and grants of students and um, local organizations. Um, and we've also done a number of workshops and hackathons uh, for youth, youth programs and coding programs. And so we are working on building that and expanding and growing a lot more. And so, you know, we've been able to achieve that with just a small amount of volunteers and staff and, and little to no funding. And so we're hoping to really grow. We're starting to see a lot of opportunities come our way now because of what we've been doing for the past two years. And so I'm excited about, you know, what's to come. And I know that with your office hours, and I don't know how they are now that they're virtual, mm-hmm. but you were really, I mean, you're going to different parts of Jackson, different mm-hmm. public libraries. Mm-hmm. You were inviting folks in to really solve any kind of a tech problem Yep. whether it was trying to program your phone or trying to build a website or trying to mm-hmm. get ahead as a kid, right? So, yep. I mean, what yep. were, what was, you know, what were some of the more interesting things that you saw through that project? Yeah, so a lot of people, you know, that would never probably start a, a company or a startup company, they would come in and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing this and, and you know, I'm thinking about, I have this idea and I want to kind of take it further. And some people really were able to, you know, at least get a really, a jump start on what they were doing um, because of just coming to sit down and just a lot of times people just want someone to talk to about it. They want to be able to jump start and, and just run an idea by someone that they trust. And we try to be that safe space. Um, another interesting thing we found is that quite a few, I would say at least a third, almost maybe a half of the people that would come were senior citizens. Mm-hmm. And they would tell their friends and they would bring their other friends. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, um, older people, Senior citizens really do want to know about technology, you know, but they don't want to be a burden to someone or they don't want to, um, so sometimes they're too intimidated, but they really do want to learn. And studies have shown that. And so, you know, we're, we're there for them. You know, we, no question is a stupid question. No question is a bad question. We actually try to teach you how to solve the problem yourself as well. We, we don't just do it for you. Um, so people come in, they learn a lot and they leave and they hopefully, uh, you know, spread that information on to other people. Now, I know you're um, literally right now in town doing some more work. Yep. Why don't you talk about what is that? And tell me, is it part of the Bean Path, your next yeah. kind of development plan here? We'll talk. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So um, my new project, because I can't sit still <laughs> and not. I always, uh, you know, I have to do something. <laughs> but um, I, I enjoy it, though. I think um, my new project is a 12 acre, seven building mixed use development project. Um, right here in the downtown Jackson area. It is, um, right now I'm calling it the Jackson Tech District. Um, And what it is is to encompass live, work, play, different, uh, like I say, mixed-use buildings, uh, including a makerspace building, which includes, you know, 3D printers. If you want to print something, you want to create something new, you want to have these industrial sewing machines or um, these um, T-shirt printing press machines, woodworking equipment, um, everything we used to have in shop class growing up that they don't have now, you know, and just being able to have that place to where literally if you can think it, we can help you build it. And then maybe you can go sell it or maybe you can use that to create the next big, big thing. And so um, we'll have places like that right now. There's there isn't currently a, a place like that that's open to the public, whereas you don't ha- you don't necessarily be associated with a university or a school. Right. Um, and so anyone can just, you know, go in and have a membership or go to a workshop or learn something new about about those things. Um, we also have restaurants, um, innovation hub, there'll be a conference and training center. Um, there's a big barn in the middle of the property. Um, this is located at, by the way, it's located at North Gallatin street and a mid street right at, right there at the corner, both sides of the street. So like both sides of the street, the, the whole 12 acres. And so, 
Um, both sides of Gallatin or both sides of Ahmed? Both sides of Gallatin, okay. North Gallatin. Okay. And so um, there's a big barn building over there. Um, and you can imagine, you know, there's so much you can do with the barn. You know, I've, I've been on Pinterest. I've seen a lot of things <laughs> that people do, including, you know, not just getting married, but having events. And mm. you can think about all the tech fairs and, and the marketplaces. And um, there's so much we could do there, um, events pertaining to technology um, or not. You know, we, we want this to be a part of the community where people say, okay, we don't want people to be intimidated by the tech dish. We want to show them how tech is involved and deeply ingrained and weeded through, weaved, weaved throughout our everyday lives. So whether you're a photographer, whether you're in the medical field, um, you know, journalism, um, pretty much there's some aspect of technology that you use. And we want to just bring that out and make that shine um, here in the city. So what got you going on that? So I... <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. I would always pass by uh, that barn growing up, and I just thought that was the coolest building. It's, it has this red top. It's seventeen thousand square feet, and I would just pass by whenever I would, you know, go downtown for whatever reason. And I just thought it was the coolest building. And just recently, um, you know, with, with the startup um, acquisition with Park Pick and being at Amazon, actually a lot of pe- there's quite a few people at Amazon that have a lot of stuff going on on the side. It's like they have startups. They have uh, one one of my coworkers, I remember this, when I first got to Amazon, I remember him saying or someone was saying that he owns two or three shopping malls in India. And he was an Indian male, right? He yeah. was he was a, a, a software developer or product manager at the time. And I just remember somebody saying, I was like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> you know, wait a minute. People out here doing it like that? And I was like, wait a minute. And so uh, that really just got me thinking, like, all this stuff that I've been trying to do, I don't really have to put it on hold. I just got to make sure I'm, I'm pacing myself and I have a, a solid team to help with things that I want to do. I can't do it all alone. That's when things really took off when I got a team of people to work with me. And um, so I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, I can do it. I can do both. You know, I can at some point, you know, I'm pretty sure I would want to, you know, pull away from from uh, the Amazon or pull away from the, the full-time thing and go all, you know, entrepreneur. Um, but, you know, until that time comes, you know, you can get it started. You can do multiple things. You can wear many hats. You just got to, um, you know, be careful with your time. Don't overdo it, you know, and get a solid team to help and support you. So is there anything that you would say to um, the Nashley that was that was going to Murrah or that was uh, taking music lessons, yep. you know, now, now that you've been on this yep. journey? Yeah, I would say um, – well, I always say if I if I would have known everything I had to go through, I probably would not have. So I probably would not say anything to myself. Just I would be just quiet. let myself naively <laughs> go into computer engineering and all these other things. But yeah, I I always say that I, I kind of naively. I just thought it was cool. I didn't really know what all it entailed. I just they only showed me the good side, you know. So they tricked me. But I thank you for that, whoever you are. <laughs> As you're coming back to Jackson now and spending this time and seeing it with the perspective that you've got. Is there anything else that you kind of think you'd like to see Jackson doing to help it get ahead? Yeah, so I think, and I think this about um, Mississippi in general, because, you know, I'm on, I'm on several boards um, here in the city as well as uh, Mississippi State, Engineer, Dean of Engineering um, Council, as well as um, I'm involved with several organizations, even um, Higher Purpose in the Delta and worked with some people on the coast. I think we can stand to work together a lot more. And I I really would like to see more initiatives with us leveraging the resources that each other has that maybe we're in need of and really pulling together to, you know, overcome the poverty 
overcome the you know competition, the unhealthy competition. Some competition is good, but some competition just ends up hurting everybody, you know. And I and I want to make sure that you know we're just working together a lot more. Where do you see that competition, I mean, and, and who would it? Who? Where are these resources that we need to pull together? Yeah, so I think you know there's a lot of. Um, I believe there's a lot of funding in the state. Some people may may disagree with me, but I think that the funding is there. I just think it may not be allocated um, in the right in the right way. And I I can't you know I can't I can't say any um, you know definite details about any of it. But um, based on what I've, I've observed, and like I said, I've been involved with people all across the state working together. I try to work with as many people as possible. If it's not continuous, at least you know being introduced to someone or understanding you know what they're pain points are, what the um, blind spots spots are. And I think, you know, in terms of administration from the local uh, government all the way up to the state government, um, you know, I like to see uh, a lot better um, coherent, you know, um, pool there. So, Well, and, you know, what I'd like to say is, and I think a lot of people uh, have already recognized this, but you are a fantastic ambassador for the city and the state. And you. you are also a wonderful product of the city and this state. And hopefully people will look at and ask you <laughs> some oh. of the things that went into making you you yep. because we need to keep doing that. You yeah. Know? There's I, a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And I'm and I'm happy to, um, you know, talk to people. I'm involved with a lot of organizations. There's a lot. It's a lot that's rumbling under, under the ground right now. And I think, um, you know, soon enough, a lot of that will come to fruition. And so um, I, I appreciate you for saying that. And I try to be, you know, there's not anybody who knows me doesn't know where I'm from. You know, I always, I rep Mississippi all the time. I put it on my back. And I, I think, uh, you know, people love that passion. And it makes them want to understand, well, I wonder what Mississippi got going on out there. You know, I wonder what makes her so happy to talk about it. The only thing I see about it is X, Y, and Z. And, and they're not, you know, the positive things. And so I think a lot of changes happen, you know, even just down to the flag itself. Um, I think there's there's definitely a lot to come with Mississippi, and I'm looking forward to it. I want to thank Nashley Cephas for joining us on this program. A link to her website and the website for The Bean Path can be found in the show notes. And you can find her on social media using the handle PhenomenaNashley. Let's Talk Jackson is powered by the Jackson Free Press and sponsored by Mississippi Federal Credit Union. This episode was edited by Courtney Moncure. Our executive producers are Donna Ladd and Bo York. For Let's Talk Jackson... I'm Todd Stoffer.